ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're in a series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, looking at this biography of Jesus through the eyes and through the lens of his closest earthly confidant, the Apostle John. And John's life was changed and made new as a result of what he had seen and heard in the life of Jesus. And he wrote this so that we might, through what we see and what we hear, might too believe as John did. And so uh, this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the entire uh, chapter uh, this morning. But uh, as you turn there, would you just take a moment and bow with me for a word of prayer. Father God, we come and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place. We've come from all manner of weeks. Some have had great weeks, others have had incredibly difficult weeks, and yet we've come all seeking to uh, give you glory and honor, uh, to thank you for uh, the blessings and even the difficult moments and times that we face. Lord, we come to a passage that is uh, a great reminder of our great need for you. We too are blind, and we need you to restore our sight so that we might be able to see. Lord, I give you praise for what you're doing in our church I pray for uh, the uh, six other campuses that are meeting and uh, are opening your word right now. I pray for the men that are uh, preaching at their uh, local campuses, and I pray that you would use them to change lives. Continue to use Village Bible Church uh, to make an impact in the Fox Valley community and all over the world. We love you and give you praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, with these 40 verses ahead of us, I want to look at them under the heading, Questions That Need to Be Answered. Jesus finds himself leaving the temple after a month of, a month, I'm sorry, a week of celebrating the festivities at the Festival of the Booths or Tabernacles. Uh, Two whole chapters have been dedicated to that, chapter 7 and chapter 8, where Jesus has said that he is living water, and he has said that he is the light of the world. And now, as he's leaving the temple, he comes across uh, the path of a man who was born blind. And in this text, we come to three questions that we cannot leave unanswered. And we have to answer them so that we can find some level of purpose and some level of peace in our world. But let's face it, we live in a world that's full of questions. We have questions about who we are, where we're to go, who we're to engage with, uh, maybe who's going to be involved in our life. Questions mill all around in our minds as to uh, all manner of life. Our world and our lives are full of questions, even sometimes odd questions. Back in 1980, the United States was mesmerized by a question. For you old fogies out there, you remember that question. It had to do with one of the hottest TV shows around. The nation was spellbound with this simple question, who shot J.R.? How many remember that? You just aged yourself, right? Everybody's looking. Those are the old people in the church, right? Who had done it? The number one show of all time, that episode alone had the highest mark because people wanted that question answered. And it was. Don't ask me what the answer was, but they figured out who shot J.R. 
How about this last weekend? In this last weekend, we, we had a question about sports. Will Tom Brady retire or not? Word came out yesterday afternoon that he was retiring, the greatest of all time, only to have his dad and others go to social media and say, no, he hasn't retired, and maybe in the next hours or in the next handful of days, we will know whether or not Tom Brady is going to retire once and for all at the ripe old age of 174. (laughs) Churches have questions that need to be answered. Churches have lots of questions, and one of the questions we always want to ask here is, who is the most beautiful and smartest of all campus pastors? And you know what the answer is, right? Yeah. In the first service, Laura Wood was here, and Laura Wood is the mom of of this guy right here, David Wood. She yelled out David's name, and people are like, why is that lady so passionate about one of the campus pastors? There you go. (laughs) I'm going to tell David that his mom's yelling in church. She was here just for that moment, right? She went back. There it is. So a lot of questions, but let's be honest. And with all kidding aside, those three questions really aren't that important, right? Those questions don't impact our lives. They're fun to ask, and, and they're fun to get an answer to. But let's face it, a lot of you have come today with lots of questions, Questions that gnaw at your soul. Questions that are there when you go to bed and when you wake up. Questions that have been there for a long period of time. Questions that seemingly there is no answer to. Our text today brings out three questions that I think are important. And I don't think they can go unanswered. And there are three different types of questions. It's not like they're connected, because let's face it, there's a lot of moving parts within this text. There's a lot of people talking, there's a lot of interaction, and there's a lot of questions along the way. And so with the time I have, and with your patience, let's just walk through each of these questions, and let's seek to ask God what the answer is. The text starts with this. Jesus is leaving the temple in in verse 1 of chapter 9, and it tells us that he passes by a man, and he sees a man blind from birth. In verse 2, it says, And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In those first three verses, the question that I need to answer first is why is there suffering in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Now that's a question that isn't just asked of Christians. That's a question, in fact, if you were to look and and, and look at the most asked questions on Google, one of their tops on the list is why is there suffering or why is there evil? And that's a question that all of us ask. We've no doubt come to a hopeless situation or a hopeless cause or to a person that seemingly is helpless and who is suffering, and we see their hurt and their pain and their sorrow, and we ask the question, why, God? Why? Why is this happening? And so here's this man that Jesus passes by and sees, and he was born blind, The sorrow, the struggle that this man faced in many ways is countless. His life was never, ever normal. 
He didn't have the dreams. He didn't have the hopes that other people did. And people saw him in his pathetic and pitiful lot, and they said, what happened there? we got to get that question answered. And I want you to see that there are three plausible answers, one of which I believe to be true. The first one is, is the response of the disciples. And that is that suffering happens as a manner of consequence. You can write that down. It's a manner of consequence. So they see a person who's suffering, and they ask the question, who did wrong? Who did evil? Who sinned? Now, in this case, they say that there are two possible or plausible sinners in the mix, the man himself or his parents. Now, there was a lot of thinking, especially as Greek and Roman teaching was making its way into the Holy Land, that an individual, in essence, paid for future sins that the gods would place disabilities and handicaps Upon them. So the gods knew that this man was going to be a sinner. He was going to be an evil man. And so the gods gave him blindness. Blindness for two reasons. Maybe one, to stop the evil or badness that this man was going to do in his future life, that he would be blind at birth. And and also to remind others, don't mess with the gods. Don't mess with them or they might do the same. In Eastern religions, we call this karma. You do something good, good things result. You do something bad, bad things result. Can I just tell you, this is the default place that many of us go when we see suffering? When something happens, a bad diagnosis, something uh, bad happens to an individual, we no doubt go to that it happened as a result of something they did or were doing. And I'm just here to tell you, well, that makes us feel better. What, in essence, it does is it makes all of us out to be gods. We are the sovereigns. We are the captains of our vessels. We are the ones who determine where we go and what will happen with us. And so there's an idolatry to the fact that we think we have that type of control in our lives. Now, the reason why we do that is because, let's face it, We do make decisions, and those decisions have consequences. And so bad decisions, therefore, bring forth bad consequences. And for the most part, that may be true. But let's be honest. There's a great many things that seemingly we cannot tie a first cause or or a causation to that effect. And so we've got to be very careful because here's this guy that Jesus says it wasn't because of his sin The more plausible idea was that it would have been one of the parents, and that is that mom during the time of gestation probably could have been haphazard. She may not have eaten right. She may have done things that brought the the baby in utero, uh, things that might have damaged him in his his process of, of growing in the womb. Maybe dad abused mom. Maybe he beat her up, and and that trauma brought the baby to be born blind. That could be the case, but Jesus opens the door that there is a lot of suffering in our world that doesn't happen as a result of sin, even when we want to define it as that. So if it's not consequences that brought this suffering, and in fact sometimes 
the suffering that comes in our world, could it be a confluence of circumstances? So maybe it's not karma. Maybe what it is is this chaos. The chaos theory is a philosophical theory that because we live in a world of chance, because we live in a world where it's disordered, that there's going to be times and moments that good things happen to you. But let's face it, in a world of chaos, there's going to be a lot of bad that's going to come. There's going to be a lot of chaos that's going to ensue. So the first one is, is we believe we're God, determining what we're going to do, where we're going to go, and we are the one who pays the due penalty or the blessing of good decisions or bad decisions. The second one is, there is no God. There is no God, and you're on your own. And you are, and just visualize yourself in a casino, you're at the craps table and you're rolling the dice with every decision, with every moment, with everything. And so a husband and wife find out that they're pregnant and they're going to have a child. And in that moment, they're rolling the dice. Will the baby be healthy? Will the baby have issues? Will the baby live? Will the baby, all of these things. And they're rolling the dice, hoping and praying and wishing and believing, but knowing that there is no rhyme or reason to why bad things happen to good people. Are you following that? This is the confluence of circumstances. This one says there is no God, and it leaves us hopeless Because when suffering and trouble comes, we have nowhere to turn. We can't get mad about it because it just happened. We can't try to figure out why it happened because it just happened by chance. You're a human being, and in this broken and flawed world that we live in, full of chaos, there's really no answer. Jesus says that's not it either. Notice in verse 3 what Jesus says is he says there is a reason for suffering. And his reason is seen, and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen to me very, very carefully. This is so helpful in our moments of suffering. If you don't believe yourself to be God, and if you believe that there is a God, then this is where you will land. I have a God, and that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign over the good times, he's sovereign over the bad times, and yes, he is sovereign over the ugly times. So this blindness of this man was not a surprise to God. Jesus didn't go, whoa, we messed up that one. Jesus said, this happened for a reason, Listen to me, friends, you will never get beyond your suffering unless you know that God has a reason for you to suffer. You'll never get beyond it. You will be filled with dread and hopelessness and sorrow and grief. But Jesus says there is a reason for suffering, and here it is. It isn't the confluence of circumstances It isn't a matter of just simply consequences. That can happen at times. Consequences can come. But many times the reason why we suffer, the reason why we deal with lifelong ailments, the reason why there's birth defects and struggles, the reason why bad things happen to seemingly good people is God wants to point people to Jesus Christ. And let's face it. If our world was perfect... If we had no trouble and no sorrow and no suffering, then we would have no need for God. 
And so suffering comes into our seemingly normal life and we throw up our hands and we say, what do I do with this? When tragedy strikes, where do I go with this? I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go with this. I'm filled with such hopelessness and grief. And the Bible tells us that there's a purpose for it. I'm indebted to John Piper for this quote. He says the following. He says, with regards to why there's suffering in the world, the implication of this for your life is profound. No matter what your mess you're in or what pain you're in, the causes of that mess and the pain are not decisive in explaining it. What is decisive in explaining it is God's purpose. Why is that mess? Why is that pain? Why is that suffering there? Piper says there are causes. Some of them are your fault, perhaps. Some are not. But those causes are not decisive in determining the meaning of the mess or the pain. What is absolutely decisive is God's purpose. It was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, the text says. So Piper goes on, he says, if we confess our sins and hold fast to Jesus as your rock and as your redeemer and as your riches, God's purpose for your mess and your pain will be a good purpose. Let me say that again. Those who are struggling with suffering and difficulties and turmoil in your life, what the Bible says is that God's purpose for your suffering, your mess, your pain is a good purpose. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when trials of many kinds come your way. Why? Because God's got a purpose. He's got a plan. What he told the brothers, or, or what he told uh, Joseph to tell to his brothers, what man intended for harm, God intended for good. Therefore, and you should just, man, just make this your, your creed this week, it will be worth everything you must endure. Did you read that right? Your pain, your sorrow, your despair. As a Christ follower, God is promising, listen, he is promising to you that if you will walk with him amidst that suffering, that it will be worth everything that you've got to endure. You say, but I haven't seen it yet. But you're forgetting there's a whole long thing called eternity. And we are but living just this short little time frame. And yes, it may feel like a lifetime, but in the broad scape of forever and ever and infinitely eternal time, where Jesus says, no eye has heard, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. And so you who are suffering, you who are struggling, I don't diminish that suffering in any way, shape, or form. What I do is I put that suffering and I put Christ as the backdrop of it. And that's why Peter says, these are light and momentary trials in comparison to the exceeding riches that God has. So he says it'll be worth everything that we must endure. We know this to be true because God said so, and this is the verse sufferers should hold on to. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all suffering work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? So here's this man born blind. 
And his life has never been normal. He has never seen his mom or dad. He's never seen his friends. He's never experienced what it's like to be a normal, regular kid in that time. At that time, there's no plan or purpose to educate him and to care for him. And there's no way really for him to read in a lot of ways. He probably doesn't know how to write. I mean, this man has struggle upon struggle upon struggle. And Jesus comes his way, and Jesus says, for this moment you have endured suffering. For this very moment you have endured a lifetime of pain and sorrow. And notice in the text, after he's healed by Jesus, he doesn't talk about his old way of life. He doesn't bring it up on how bad it was, and here's why. The miracle made all of the suffering worth it. Christian, we will suffer in this world, but I will tell you, the moment we see Jesus, just as this man did, it will make whatever pain and sorrow we face in this world worth it. And so hold on to that. Grab on to that truth. When suffering comes, you hug that truth, and you hold tightly to that truth, because if you don't, you will make yourself God, or you will say in your heart, there is no God, and what a foolish thing to do. Why is there suffering? Because God wants to use it to point people to Jesus. Now, let me just say, as an addendum to this, maybe right now you're suffering, Maybe right now you are without hope, and I want you to know right now, I empathize with your suffering, and I call you with every fiber of my being, turn to Jesus. Turn to him. Grab hold to him, and your suffering will find its purpose. Question number two. After they ask the question about this man, the second question that comes is one that's, that's in the text, but we wouldn't see it unless we really dug into it, and that is, how, how does Jesus save? How, how does Jesus save people? Now, the reason why I say it's not in, explicit in the text is that Jesus is healing a blind man. He's giving a blind man the ability to see. Now, Within the text, if we just read the text and had no other elements of the Bible with us, then what we would do is say, this is descriptive alone of what Jesus did in that moment. But I want you to see that what we have is not just a description for that moment, that place, that person, that time, but something that is prescriptive for all of us. And here's why. When I go through the Bible, I will learn one of the characteristics that is used almost uniformly of us in our sin is the description that we are blind. The Bible says it in the Old Testament. The Bible says it in the New Testament. Jesus says it. We are individuals who are blind. And not only blind, but we were born blind. Well, you're like, listen, I've got 20-20 vision. I'm, I'm good. No, the Bible says spiritually that we're in darkness. The Bible says spiritually we are blind. The Bible says we cannot find our way and find our purpose in this world, and we cannot find our creator. And because of that, we're at enmity, we're at war with our God because we live in darkness while he is 
in the light. And so Jesus has already said, I am the light. And notice he says it again. He says in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What does light do? Light brings light to darkness. Now having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said, go wash in the pool. And so he sent the man. The man washed and came back seeing So let's stop there. Not only do we get a description of what Jesus did there, we get a prescription of what Jesus does with us as sinners, blind sinners. So let's look. Write this down. The first thing that Jesus does for this man and for us as blind sinners is he seeks us out. He seeks us out. Verse 1. As he passed by, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus walks by and he sees a man. Again, this isn't by happenstance. Jesus does everything on purpose. And so Jesus sees this man. When Jesus locks eyes onto this man, he knows the man's name. He knows the man's struggles. He knows the man's issues. He knows the man's sins. He knows everything about this man. Jesus is God. He knows it all. And Jesus could have walked right by this guy, but he doesn't. Now, Jesus not only knows what this man has done, but he knows that the very presence of this man is going to cause his disciples to ask questions. So Jesus stops and pauses in seeing this man, and it creates an opportunity I want you to see this morning that just like this man, Jesus too is seeking you out. Jesus is on the lookout for you. And just like this man, Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows where you're from. Jesus knows the struggles you've had. Jesus knows the issues you're dealing with. Jesus knows the sins that you've racked up. Jesus knows all of that. And Jesus could walk by, but he doesn't. That's why the Gospel of Luke says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus is on this search process of finding you and bringing you closer to him. So the first thing that happens in our salvation, in this man's miracle, is that he is sought out by Jesus. And we too are sought out by Jesus. This blind man did not go looking for Jesus. This blind man couldn't have gone looking for Jesus. This man was right where he was at, and Jesus came looking for him. And I want you to know today, God came looking for you. Number two, the man's not healed just because Jesus walks by. The man's not healed because Jesus stops at this blind man's place. Jesus has to do something. That's the second thing. Jesus has to do something. And so the text says he does a pretty gross thing. How ironic it is the two things that all mothers tell their sons not to do. I have three sons. I've heard my wife do it. Don't spit and don't play in the mud. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, why does he do it? Scholars have asked this question because let's face it, in each of the other miracles that Jesus has done, and there's been a handful of miracles, Jesus has never done anything like this before. 
in the turning of water into wine. He simply willed it to happen. There's nothing that says he did anything physical that even touched the wine. In the healing of the nobleman's son, he does it from a long distance. And so he doesn't even, he's not even in the same room as the boy. We're told then when he makes uh, uh, the bread and fishes to be multiplied, it doesn't say that he turned them out of stones or, or out of grass, but simply multiplied what was already there. This he takes a foreign object, saliva and dirt, and he then applies it to the man's eyes. Why? Some scholars believe that what he's doing is he's inviting a larger discussion with the Pharisees about the law. And here's why. The the Pharisees later in the text get all ticked off at Jesus and say, this man's a sinner and this man can't be from God because he broke the Sabbath. And really, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath, okay? If you look at what it says about the Sabbath, what the Pharisees said was that Jesus broke the law of kneading bread, You get that? That Jesus' law-breaking was that he kneaded bread, that is, he pounded and worked out the bread for it to be able to be baked. He did that on the Sabbath. You say, wait a minute, time out. There's no bread, there's no kneading, what's being talked about? Well, what the Pharisees had done since the time of Moses, they had added to it, and the things that they had added was, yeah, you weren't supposed to need bread, meaning you weren't supposed to prepare food on the Sabbath so that you could worship and give your day to rest. The the Pharisees of the day had added rules, man-made rules, and they said, listen, you can't even make mud. You can't spit, And so Jesus spits and he makes mud and they equated it to Jesus kneading the mud as you would knead bread. That's a problem. Well, listen, it's not a problem with God, it's a problem with man, of which we'll deal with in the next point. And so Jesus is using this to show the absurdity of the Pharisees and their stupid man-made rules. Yes, stupid, you can say that, kids, with your parents around. Those rules were stupid, okay? The second thing is, is that scholars say that maybe the reason why is that when John writes this gospel, Roman and Greek philosophy had infiltrated uh, Christianity. And the thought that anything of the earth, including our flesh, was evil. And so what Jesus was doing, knowing that that's going to be a struggle for the church, John records this for this very purpose, that we would know that our flesh and the world, everything in it is good. God created it to be good. It's not evil. They had thought that only the spirit was good and only spiritual things were good. And here's Jesus doing a very earthly thing to affect great change. Those are two very plausible answers. I don't disagree with them, but can I add one more? In my study, and as I just reflected and meditated on it, this is, this is what I came up with, and you can wrestle with it and not like it. But I think Jesus took something very, very dirty, very, very gross, very, very defiled, if you will, the art of spitting and making of mud. There's nothing valuable in that. There's nothing beautiful in that. And he took something really that is despised, mud, and he made it beautiful. And you say, okay, 
Well, does he do that anywhere else? And I would turn your attention to the crosses on the side walls. Yeah. Because what he did on the cross is he took something so atrocious, so defiled, so bad. In fact, the Bible says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. The cross was a symbol of the world's greatest shame and reproach. And Jesus did for us what he did for this blind man. He took that which was defiled in the world, that was gross in the world, and he made something beautiful of it. Just as he did on that Good Friday, he took that which was ugly and that which was shameful, and he made it the beautiful thing that it is that we adorn our churches with it, this symbol of violence, this symbol of shame, this symbol of execution, and we lift it up and we wear it around our necks as a beautiful thing because Jesus took that which was cursed and made it a blessing. And could it be that Jesus was using this as an opportunity to show that he is God, that he can take the worst of things and make something beautiful about it. Listen to me, friends. When we understand what Jesus has done, we will see that in our salvation he took that which was ugly, that which was broken, that which was crippled, that which was blind, that which was dead, and he gave us new life in him. And if that doesn't give you goosebumps, if that doesn't move in your heart, something's wrong. Because that's what Jesus did. Now, did that make the man see? Notice in the text that it says that at that point the man's still blind. So he says, he spat on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, he anointed the man's with eyes, and then he said, go wash at the pool of Saloma which means scent, which is, by the way, it's not the closest pool. There's four, I believe, if I have the picture right in my head, there are four other pools that are much closer to the entrance of the temple than this one. And he says, I want you to go there, and I want you to wash your eyes. And so the man does that. I want you to know that Jesus comes seeking after us, Jesus has to do something. He went to the cross for us. Now, we still aren't saved, and that blind man still isn't seeing. He doesn't see, and we're not saved, listen to me, until we obey. Look in the text. It says, go wash in the pool. So he went. So he obeyed. He washed, and help me out, friends, and came back kid got it. He came back seeing. It was only after his obedient steps that he saw. Listen to me. Some of you are here and you have never bowed the knee to Jesus. You have never obeyed his call. What is God's call for us in salvation? God's call is this. I came to seek and to save. I came and sent my son to die on the cross for you. Now what is your job? Your job is to do one thing. To turn from sin and therefore turn to Christ. And if you have never done that, then you will not experience the new life in Christ. Your blindness will remain. That man, until he washed his eyes, was he 
able to see. Now listen, did the man heal himself? The answer is a no. Do we work out something so that we're saved? The answer is no. But we have to receive what has been done for us. This man, by faith, had to walk to that pool, probably having someone lead and guide him. Half a mile journey it would have been, which would have seemed like an eternity for a blind man, all the while saying, why in the world did this man tell me to do this? No one's ever done this before, and I'm going to obey Jesus. Now listen, he didn't have a theological framework for it. He didn't fully understand it. He had a lot of questions about it, but listen, he obeyed. And likewise, you don't have to have all your theology figured out. You don't have to have all your answers, all your questions answered. All you need to do is obey the words of Jesus. Jesus says, turn from your sin and turn to me. And if you will do that, you will come away seeing. And some today came into this place blind. And Jesus says, Will you obey me? And in doing so, will you have your sight restored? Why is there suffering? We've answered it. Why or how does Jesus save? Jesus seeks us. He does something for us. And we obey. The third question is, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but the rest of the text is all about it. How does religion make people stumble? How does religion make people stumble? The rest of the text involves five conversations that the Pharisees have with different people. The Pharisees have it with the man who's blind, then the Pharisees have it with the parents, and then the Pharisees have it again with the man, and then Jesus has a conversation, and then also in the early part of it, the man has a conversation with his neighbors. Lots of conversations, lots of questions, and the problem that we see is that religion gets in the way. Now listen, we've talked about last week, one of the greatest lies that the devil tells is that religion saves. I want you to know that this church, listen to me, is not a religion. This church is a collection of people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're a family. And so we don't have all of the ornaments and all of the things that would set us as this is the body of religion that we have. Do we have beliefs? Yes. But we have beliefs in a person. We have a relationship with a person. And religion, what religion does is it gets in the way. Let me show you just very quickly in this text three ways religion gets in the way. First of all, religion is all about rules, not results. It is absurd that the Pharisees would have an issue with all of this. Their issue is, is that Jesus has broken the law of making mud and standing right before their eyes is a man who by all witnesses was born blind who now sees. We are told he's a man of his own age, meaning he's an adult. He is no doubt a man probably, by the way, in his 30s. Because to be an adult, to speak with authority as a rabbi would, to be held in high regard within a courtroom, you would have had to have been a man who had eclipsed 30 years of age. So his parents come in, and they're aged, 
And he says, listen, he's a man of his own age, let him speak. And this man speaks, and he doesn't have it all figured out. He says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And they say, but wait a minute, he, he spat in the mud and he made mud out of dirt. We gotta deal with that. Religion will always get in the way of biblical, godly results. It will get in the way. The second thing that religion does is that religion capitalizes on fear instead of faith. Notice in the text, they bring mom and dad in, and they're like, all right, <laughs> okay, we need you to answer some questions here. So is this your son? Yep, yep, that's, that's, that's Bobby. There's Bobby, the blind man. That's him. It's been our son all his life. Saw him born, saw him raised. Was he blind? Yep. Was he blind at 10? Yep. Five? Yep. One? Yep. Was he blind when he was born? Yep. He was born ever since. We've always known him to be blind. What happened? Who fixed him? Don't know. Don't ask. The text says in verse 23, these things were said because they feared for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I got three sons. If any one of them were born blind, and later in their life they miraculously were able to see, I hope that I wouldn't live in fear. And that's what these people do. They're like, listen, don't get us involved in this thing. Your son, the child you've loved, the child you've raised, the child you've watched now experience this new life that you saw suffer every step of the way, that child, you have the audacity because of fear. Listen, they were locked into their religion. Their religion was more important than the results of Jesus healing their son. And there's a lot of people that are grabbing hold, listen to me, and it's so sad. There are a lot of people in this world that are grabbing hold of all kinds of religion and they're holding on to that religion and they're pushing away Jesus. That's what religion does. That's why it is so insidious. And here's the final reason why, is because it brings forth judgment it doesn't bring us to Jesus. Religion says we've got the answers. Religion says we can get you closer to God. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, this is verse 35, having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who, may, who see may become blind. What Jesus is saying there, because there's a bit of a contradiction, Jesus said he didn't come in John 3 to judge the world. Now he says he did. The idea here is he didn't come to condemn the world. But what he's saying is, is I am the dividing line by which people see or don't see. And I am the dividing line of people who think they see, who inevitably will become blind. And so what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, we're all blind. We all are in need of sight. And the only answer is not religion. 
The only answer is not that it's circumstances that made you this way or a confluence of issues that made you this way. The issue is, is that your blindness is a reminder. It is a declaration to all of who you are. I am blind and it shows me in clear colors and clear sight that I need Jesus. And so if you find yourself blind this morning. The answer isn't yourself. The answer isn't religion. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to our darkness and to our blindness. And here's the great thing. He came to give it to you. All you have to do is ask.